Hi everyone, and welcome to Kopi and Song. I am Sridhar, one of the Opera People's co-founders, and I am really excited to welcome you to this episode of our Kopi and Song podcast series. Kopi and Song is a series that introduces some of the personalities in the local classical, vocal, and opera scene. Today's episode, Off Divas, Ladies, and Handmaids, explores the history of the soprano voice tracing its evolution over 400 years, featuring Joyce Lee Tung, Renata Han Sungwon, and pianist Pauline Lee. In sweet accents can calm each troubled heart. And now with noble anger, now with love, can kindle the most frigid minds. In 1609, this was how Claudio Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, acknowledged to be the first opera still performed today, begins. And the first voice we hear is this, the goddess of music who declares her power to inspire and tame. No other voice type has such a cult-like following or commanded such extreme devotion as the soprano voice. In Jean-Jacques Benix's 1981 film Diva, a young Parisian mailman attends the concert of an American opera star who refuses to make recordings. He's so obsessed with her voice that he smuggles a tape recorder into the concert hall. The star appears and as soon as she starts singing, he enters a trance state, her voice washing over him. What's remarkable about the scene is that the singer is singing an aria with no subtitles taken completely out of context of its original opera. 
but none of this seems to matter. The scene serves as a reminder of how powerful an impact the voice can have. A high soprano making herself heard over an orchestra of up to 100 players completely unaided, and in that moment, she almost transcends that which is humanly possible. And most importantly, the gender role of the second sex that society has imposed on her. Now, get me started on Sopranos and I can go on for hours. But I do want to draw attention to the fact that the roles that gender, society and class impose upon women do collide in larger-than-life ways on the operatic stage. And this will be the focus of today's podcast. Fast forward 100 years and we find public opera houses popping up all over Europe with diverse audiences. And at this time, we see the rise of professional virtuoso singers. Star performers trained to amaze their audiences with a level of difficulty unprecedented in Monteverdi's time. But even then, there were rules as to which kinds of characters could perform which kinds of arias. In the early 17th century, opera seria, serious opera, was all the rage. Now, by modern standards, the plot of opera serias can seem very formulaic, with a complicated plot that no one can follow, set in an ancient time with a small number of characters who spend most of their time trying to either murder or seduce one or more of the other characters who then lapse into outpourings of emotions when they do or do not get what they want. But they were ultimately vehicles for star singers. Now, in any opera seria, there were typically a range of arias that were expected. For example, the rage aria, the joyful aria, and the love aria. But there was only one kind of aria that was saved for the leading lady, the most noble of characters in the plot, the lament. Take Handel's 1735 opera Alcina, for example. The title character and her sister, Morgana, rule over an island where they turn men into animals when they are done using them. Alcina gets the more dramatic plotline where her latest lover, Ruggiero, leaves her when his actual wife, Bradamante, comes to rescue him dressed as a man. Morgana, meanwhile, falls in love with Bradamante and this drives the more comic elements of the plot. In her lament aria, A Mio Cor, Alcina laments her fate at being betrayed by Ruggiero, characterized by long, sustained lines with its constantly falling phrases resembling anguished sighs.
Morgana, on the other hand, gets a joyful showpiece of an aria, Tornami Avagejar, where she tries to seduce the cross-dressing Bradamante. Opera scholar Joseph Kerman called the entire period between the death of Monteverdi and the emergence of Mozart as the dark ages of opera. Mozart started his operatic career with works that didn't seem very different from Handel, writing opera series that often exalted the monarchies and patrons of the day for the commissions he received to write them. But something changed later in his career, and while he still continued to write opera series, it was the rich sonic worlds of his late comic operas that elevated the genre. Prior to Mozart, comic operas or opera buffa were made up of stock characters that all served specific functions like the cuckled husband, the young lovers, the scheming servant. Meanwhile, serious operas were populated by virtuous nobles and the villains who would try to strip them of their noble qualities. In his opera, Le Nozze di Figaro, the marriage of Figaro, he blurs the line between these two worlds. Now, on the surface, the story seems simple enough. There are two couples, one happy, the servants Figaro and Susanna, and one unhappy, the countess and Count Almaviva. This is complicated by the fact that the roving eye of the Count Almaviva has settled on Susanna, and the characters spend most of the opera trying to expose the Count. In the first two acts of the opera, the worlds of the servants and the nobles are clearly defined. The Countess's first aria, Porgi Amor, is in fact a lament, if you remember the aria type reserved for the most noble of characters.
In the same act, Susanna's Venite Inginocchiatevi is a comic aria in which she dresses the page boy Cherubino as a girl to play a trick on the Count. It is marked by rapid syllabic singing, often on repeated notes, reminiscent of the similar declamatory style of earlier comic operas. collide as it becomes clearer that it is the servants who have their wits about them to take charge of the world of the opera. I will return to one of these moments at the end of today's podcast, but here in Act 4, Susanna and the Countess have changed outfits under the cover of night so that the Countess, dressed as Susanna, can finally catch the Count in his philandering ways. In her second aria, Susanna attempts to draw the Count out, while her husband, Figaro, secretly watches. But here, in the disguise of the Countess, she is suddenly given the social power of someone well above her class, and her aria takes on the language of the Countess with long, sensual, languorous lines that radiate the elevated nature of Susanna's inner self, even if that is not reflected in her external, servile role.
Next, a tale of two demons. At the beginning of the 19th century, massive changes to operatic paradigms set up many of the ways in which we still consume opera today. The first was the slow death of the aristocracy and the rise of the middle class sparked by the French Revolution and other revolutions across Europe. Suddenly, the consumers of opera were not the nobility and the people in power, but the rising middle class. And this meant that there was suddenly a much larger audience base hungry for the genre, and composers had to churn out operas at almost ungodly rates. The second were the changes that happened in voice types, especially with the rise of the tenor voice as the romantic hero lead, and the shift away from vocal flexibility in favour of dramatic power. Suddenly, florid vocal writing became the exclusive domain of female singers and increasingly feminized. Gender difference that in opera had always felt more like a suggestion was now here to stay with a vengeance. But with this too, only the female singers retained the ability to deliver sheer vocal excitement on stage. And as the men performed more realistic vocal roles, closer to actual speech, Sopranos, with their florid vocal writing and sustained singing over increasingly larger orchestras, seem to defy expectations of reality. And thus, the diva, or goddess, was born. And in this new role, they became the muses of the composers who were writing for them. One of the greatest of these muses was Giuditta Pasta, who inspired many composers of the time but one in particular wrote two of the greatest soprano roles for her. And in the year 1831, Pasta debuted roles in not one, but two operas by Vincenzo Bellini, Amina in La Sonambula, and the title role in Norma. The writer Stendhal said she had the ability to produce a kind of resonant and magnetic vibration which through some still unexplained combination of physical phenomena exercises an instantaneous and hypnotic effect upon the soul of the spectator. Let us listen to Anon Credea from La Sonambula.
Her companion in the premiere of Norma was Giulia Grisi. She too was the muse of Bellini for his final opera, I Puritani, and Gaetano Donizetti in his late opera, Don Pasquale. Her voice, during its prime, was praised by music critics for its exceptional beauty, evenness, and smoothness. If you notice from the two previous selections, the first was a slow, sustained aria full of deep pathos, and the second a faster one that allowed for more virtuosity. Now, remember the line going all the way back to Handel, in which sustained singing was the realm of highborn characters, and florid singing that of the secondary or lowborn characters. A double-form aria in the 19th century allowed for a singer to showcase both of these elements. In this new world dominated by the middle class, gone were the days of certain kinds of singing being limited to certain kinds of characters. A soprano now needed to be able to showcase everything, and the greatest of divas was one who could take us to emotional heights and then dazzle us with florid music. Enter Giuseppe Verdi, who in the early 1840s burst onto the operatic stage like a force of nature. And the essence of this force was his ability to take the conventions and expectations of Italian opera and harness them for dramatic power. That and the fact that unlike his predecessors, he was interested in characters who existed on the fringes of society. Slaves, hunchbacks, gypsies and prostitutes permeate his operas. In his 1852 opera, La Traviata, the title character is Violetta, a courtesan who lives a life of pleasure until she meets Alfredo, a poet who is in love with her. In her great Act One aria, he uses the double aria form to get to the heart of her conflict. In the slower first section, she muses on what it might be like to have a love that is true. But immediately following it, she dismisses her feelings as folly, and in an incredibly forward second section, she descends into delirium as she says that she must always be free to love whoever she wants as each day rises and sets. 
Here is Aforce Louis from La Traviata. Morning. 
Since the beginnings of opera, depictions of gender on stage have always been extremely fluid. As we have seen earlier in Handel's Alcina, for example, Bradamante disguises as a man in order to rescue her husband. In The Marriage of Figaro, Cherubino, whom Susanna sings her first aria to, is a soprano playing a teenage boy. In the 18th century, sopranos sometimes played the roles of young boys because a male voice would not have been able to emulate the voice of a young man before his voice broke. By the early 19th century, when the male soprano or castrato had faded from the operatic stage, a new voice type, the mezzo-soprano, took on the role of the male heroic lead, and in many of these operas, the lovers we saw on stage would be a male and a female, but they would have been portrayed by two women with the darker colour of the mezzo-soprano voice, blending with the brighter soprano voice to create a perfect sensual blend of two voices in union. As I mentioned earlier, by the mid-19th century, gender roles had become much more defined, but the soprano as a young boy makes his appearance throughout the rest of operatic history. Even in Verdi, he appears as the page boy Oscar in Un Ballo in Maschera. We now hear Oscar's aria, Volta Laterea. century, the landscape of Italian opera had changed yet again. The influence of the German composer Richard Wagner had pushed the size of the orchestra even larger, and there was a taste for gritty, hyper-realistic subjects that represented ordinary people at emotional extremes. Gone by this point was almost any trace of florid, virtuosic singing in favour of simpler, declamatory melodies that could express the simplest of emotions magnified tenfold by rich orchestral colours. In this new world of verismo, or realism, the composer who emerged as the forerunner and Verdi's successor was Giacomo Puccini. His most famous opera, La Bohème, from 1896, is set in Bohemian Paris, and its main characters could not be further from the nobles who populated earlier operas. The heroine, Mimi, is a simple seamstress secretly dying of tuberculosis. Poverty, disease, and hunger are very present, although they are filtered through a sentimental lens. The building blocks of a Puccini soprano aria are a winning formula for success. Throughout the opera, he would pepper the score with fragments of melody that would recur again and again. His arias would almost always set themselves up for success by pulling the threads of these melodies together, 
a honing of memory, and at the point where the soprano, consumed by these memories, is unable to hold on to them, a climatic outburst of a phrase would allow her to transcend the worldly nature of her circumstances. The diva may have disappeared as a character, but never as her vessel on the stage. We'll now hear the aria Dondeleta Ushi from La Boheme. no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a grey place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped onto our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest moment, 
every last man in Shawshank felt free. In this scene from the Shawshank Redemption, the prisoner Andy Dufresne plays a recording of the letter duet from The Marriage of Figaro. This little comic duet between Susanna and the Countess describes their attempt to trick the Count by switching disguises, which I have already described earlier. The text seems trivial and cliched. But then there's the music. The duettino joins together two sopranos in ways that makes their individual voices indistinguishable. Suddenly, the characters they represent, a countess and a servant, no longer matter. And 200 years later, these sounds could for a brief moment soothe a crew of brutalized prisoners. Sometimes, the experience of the voice, soaring and sublime, causes all the divisions that we have built around us to fade away. Even for a few moments, while we are transported by these little songs carried on a blissful musical breeze. Oh, <laughs> 
This episode of Copian Song is written and created by the Opera People and is produced by Mayor Vox Live under the support of Bridge, an initiative by Creatives at Work and Blue Three Asia. Narrated by Sridhar Mani, with sopranos Joyce Lee Tung and Renata Han Sung Won, with pianist Pauline Lee. Direction and sound design by Raven Lim. Production assistance by Lo Yen Ling. With special thanks to audio partners Audio Technica and City Music. <laughs>